0: Welcome to Doing CX Right, a podcast where we discuss how to differentiate brands by doing customer experience right. I'm your host, Stacey Sherman, an author, award winning keynote speaker, and mentor passionate to help you humanize business and improve experiences to achieve real results. Today, I'm happy to introduce you to Howard Tierski. He's a Wall Street Journal best selling author, consultant, and highly recognized leader who helps companies transform their customer experience to win in today's digital world. We dive deep into how you can earn the love of your customer. He talks about best practices in getting and using research before you launch new products and services, and you don't need a big budget to do so. We share tactical ways to help you maximize your competitiveness to achieve financial goals. If you like my podcast, please subscribe on your favorite channel, leave a review, and tell others to listen to. It would mean so much to me. Now, let's get on with the show. Hello, Howard Chiersky. Welcome to the Doing CX Right Show.
1: Hi, Stacy Sherman. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, as we know, we share Shep Hyken in common, and he said, I had to have you on my show, so I knew you were the real thing.
1: All right. I owe Shep that $50 I promised him.
0: <laughs> Bribery gets you everywhere, right? So <laughs> I am so happy to have you on my show, but rather than me tell the world how great you are, please share who you are. What do you do?
1: Well, hmm, such a profound question. Who am I? Well, let me start with what I do because I'm not sure I know who I am, but uh, <laughs> what I do uh is I um, I run a, a a company called From the Digital Transformation Agency. We've been uh, for fourteen years working with large enterprises primarily on different aspects of digital transformation, and uh, so it's uh, a tremendous privilege to get to work with companies like Avis or JPMorgan Chase or NBC Universal on really tricky and challenging problems that. You know, vary, of course, by company, but all stem from the same fundamental challenge, which is the world is changing rapidly. Customers' needs and expectations are changing rapidly. Digital first competitors are often very good at moving rapidly to meet those new customer needs. And large enterprises have a challenge in front of them, which is how do you stay relevant to customers in a world that's changing so fast? And dealing with that problem hand in hand with my clients, that's what I've been doing for the last, uh, well, for my whole career, really. But in my current role running this company for the last uh, 14 or so years.
0: Mm. So customer experience clearly is a mutual passion. What's your why? Why are you in this line of business?
1: You know, I um, I fell into this business, <laughs> perhaps a little bit by accident. I uh, My initial passion and in my training uh, was in theater. And so I trained as a theater director. I went to Grad school and undergrad and grad school. I went to NYU and USC and studied theater and did theater directing professionally for a bit. Um, and at the same time that I was doing that, and this was in the you know in school in the 80s and 90s, digital was becoming something that you could use to create things like CD-ROMs and kiosk experiences and things like that. And I got fascinated by it because it had many of the same characteristics that I found fascinating in theater: the ability to you know create an amazing experience for an audience. That allowed them to um perhaps that had elements of storytelling or empowered them in some way that could be created collaboratively between, you know, people create that were fundamentally sort of creative people and technical people. Because I've always had one foot in each of those camps, a creative camp, but also a technology. And of course, when you put on a theater production there's many technology components, sound and lighting and other things. So that was part of what I always loved about the theater. And then I found that, uh, you know, many of the same passions could be exercised in the world of digital. And then that world just really started to take off. And obviously we went from things like kiosks and, and, DVD and CD-ROMs to DVD to the internet. And that of course became a rocket ship and went from being a sort of a niche thing to central to so many businesses. And so you know, frankly, I could make a lot more money doing that than I could directing theater for the most part, and it was also equally exciting. So I wound up um, just focusing on that, and uh, wound, up, you know, over the last uh, I've been in this business about 25 years. I really started working in the digital world in about 1992. Uh, if that doesn't just date me, really old. And um, you know, it's just been a fascinating journey to work with companies on how they can leverage this continuous evolution of digital capabilities to better convey their message, to better serve their customers, to better deliver their products and services and ultimately to transform the way their whole companies work.
0: I love that you brought up theater which I didn't know about you because I just had on my show James Dotkins who is a true rock star. He was on stage in for many many years and we talked about how CX and the music business and being on stage and that feedback that you get from the audience, how there's so much to learn in, in a practice. So theater Well, that's, that's a really yeah.
1: interesting insight. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting insight and it goes to one of the core principles of the type of work that, that people like you and I do, and I imagine your listeners, which is that when you do theater or live musical performance, you have a continuous feedback loop with your audience. But in the type of work that we do in digital, you don't have the same type of continuous feedback loop. When when someone is sitting at their desk creating a design for an app while they're doing it, they're not getting feedback from the user automatically about whether they like it or not, right? That's not part of how it works. Now, of course, when something's live in production, in theory, we'd get continuous feedback of some sort in terms of data and metrics, But it's all a question of whether we're paying attention to those metrics and whether they really give us enough insight into really understanding what's going on. And that's one of the reasons why customer research is such a foundational part, I believe, not just of CX, but of business in general. I think the number one most important asset that any business can have is the love of their customers, the emotional connection, the commitment of their customers. And the only way that I know to get that is to start by really understanding the customer, which many businesses have, you know, I like to say like no business completely, no, there's no business that understands nothing about their customer, you wouldn't really be in business. But I think on a scale of one to 10, most businesses are about a six in terms of really understanding their customer and the opportunity to increase that kind of understanding and use that understanding as the fuel to figure out how to improve the customer's experience and therefore drive more desirable customer behaviors, which connect to business levers like loyalty, price insensitivity and willing to pay more, buying more, telling their friends, all these kind of fundamental business levers that any business
0: wants. Wow, you said a lot of really good things. So one thing I want to highlight is talking about how to make your customers love you and earn their love. And one of the things I think really important is it's not difficult in a post-launch perspective where you can get the data online, how many visitors came, e-commerce, how many checked out, abandoned cart metrics. But the part before you launch, I believe that if you don't bring customers, or I should reverse it, if you bring customers to the table or your prospects or your target personas, in the agile process of developing the app or the product, you really can earn their love from the beginning. What's your view?
1: I think that's critical. Um, there's a story I tell in my book about a woman named Uni Haskell. And she became famous on the internet because she decided she wanted to learn to play golf. She was like a 50-year-old woman, lived in Florida. And so she goes to a golf course for, for the first time, has a couple of drinks with friends. I think the story goes, if I remember correctly. Rents some clubs, goes to the first uh, hole, you know, puts the ball in the tee, swings, somebody told her which club, it's the driver, you know, to start with, swings the driver and hits a hole in one. And of course, it's an extraordinary story. So it just goes to show that anything is possible. You can completely not prepare and somehow just get wildly lucky (laughs) take a random swing at the ball, and create something that customers really love. It is possible, but it is highly unpredictable and not repeatable. And I don't think uni Haskell has ever done it again. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the the bottom line is in business, what's mostly rewarded is doing what's 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 predictable. And I think you and I both know that if you want to launch a product that's predictably going to have a positive experience from customers, There are many ways that you can evaluate and test whether you're on the right track long before you've spent the money and reputational risk of launching the product. And absolutely, understanding the customer's needs as as research, you know, this is the classic premise of design thinking, right? Which is first, understand the customer before you come up with your idea. And once you've got a bunch of ideas, before you launch them, prototype and test them with customers. This seems so obviously beneficial that it just shocks me that this is still a kind of a controversial idea. And it's still not something which is universally adopted across everybody who's creating products. Uh, I think it's grown in popularity, but it just seems like one of those things like, why wouldn't everybody be doing this? And um, you know, I think it's partly because people fall in love with their own ideas. They generate ideas and they almost don't want to disprove their ideas. They want to see them thrive. They want to see them live. They want to see them launched. And uh, that's an, an understandable and natural human impulse. But, you know, we, all, we, you know, we always call, sometimes call our ideas our babies, you know, and of course, who wants to kill their own baby? But the reality is that a lot of wasted money happens when you spend all the money to launch something where you could have, and it fails, when you could have determined much early on that you weren't on the right track, or even better, figured out how to modify the baby, so to speak, so they could be successful rather than taking that initial idea and launching it when just things you don't understand about the customer may not have uh, set it up for success.
0: You're walking exactly what, walking, talking exactly what I believe in. And for listeners, I want to emphasize that it doesn't always have to be a tangible product. When I was at Verizon, we were launching IoT, Internet of Things. You can't touch that. But what you can do is you can do these what if or imagine if scenarios. Imagine if you could, and you share that with people and you get their perception and do they see the value and their willingness to pay. So do you agree, Howard, that maybe people don't do it because they think it has to be something you could touch and feel?
1: I think that... There's different types of research, of course, different fidelities of artifacts that we can have a, a, a customer or a representative user engage with. And uh, the more realistic of an experience you can give them, the more accurate the research information you get back. At the same time, creating more realistic things like prototypes and simulations requires time and money. So I think most, the best approach to research to me is, is an iterative one where, you know, you can start by painting a picture verbally of, of what you're thinking of doing and asking whether people would, would potentially be interested in that. Um, sometimes people will say, you know, sure, that sounds great. You know, it's sort of like if I said to you, you know, would you like a flavor of ice cream that was kind of a combination of strawberry and chocolate? You might say, uh, sure, that sounds good. I like strawberry and I like chocolate, rationally, logically, and then I could make it and give it to you and you could be like, this is disgusting. I don't want this. So, Uh, You know, I think, but I think it's certainly reasonable to say if people aren't even interested in an ice cream flavor that combines strawberry and chocolate, then, well, maybe that's enough to let you know that you're not on the right track to a successful product. Although, of course, they have bacon ice cream, which sounds ridiculous to me, but some people like it. So, you know, it's never perfect, right? People can both tell you they're not interested in something they would be interested in if you actually gave them the experience. And they can tell you, even more likely, indicate that they would be interested in something, which ultimately, you know, I'll give you an example. We did a research study once for a large electricity company. And what we were studying was creating products, essentially. But what they really were, were, were um, options to sign up to pay for your electricity, where you pay a little more, but the electricity you'd get would be green electricity only. So you, all the electricity powering your home would be from renewable sources like windmills and, and solar and stuff. And when we interviewed people and asked, would you be willing to pay you know, 20% more for your electricity? If you knew that all of the electricity was coming from sustainable sources, something like 30% of people said that they would. And I thought we thought that was a pretty good percentage. You know, we didn't need to, it to be everybody for the product to be worthwhile. The product was launched and less than 1% of people were willing to pay more in reality. So there were all these people who were willing to say they were willing to pay more, but when it came down to clicking that button and paying more, they didn't do it. So these are some of the limitations of research, but that doesn't mean it's not highly valuable. You know, my analogy would be AIM, you know research helps you aim. Now, just because you aim well, does that mean the dart will always go in the center of the bullseye? Unfortunately, no. But if you don't aim, it's highly unlikely and even worse if you put a blindfold on, you know, you're almost it's almost impossible unless you just get supremely lucky. So, yeah, I think I think it's worth it. I think that it may be that some people don't do research because they think they need to create complex prototypes and they don't need to, but ultimately, what I think they get the best aim from is It's kind of like the microscope, you know. First you put it on the low magnification, you know, and then you get it. If anyone remembers from biology class, you know, you kind of get it to the right general area and then you switch. These days it's probably all digital. So my analogy may be totally shot, but you know, you switch the lens, right, (laughs) to the higher magnification, and then you do your fine adjustments. And that to me is, you know, iterative testing of something. You first do things that are coarser and easier and less expensive. And when you think you're onto something, that gives you the reason to say, you know what, it's worth spending a little more money now and actually prototyping this and testing it again to see, you know, if we can get higher fidelity feedback to further justify or not justify the investment that it might take to bring it to market.
0: Mm. Because you have your own agency and support companies, but you also know the other side, how do you find people who are listening who have their own shop? What does customer experience doing CX right mean to you? in retaining your own customer base and competitiveness. We talk a lot about big companies, but smaller companies also have to apply what we're talking about and be competitive. What what do you say to them?
1: Yeah, well, I think first of all, it's been an interesting journey because I I came out with my book, uh, launched in January, and my book is largely based on my experience working with large enterprises. And so most of the examples in my book are examples from a variety of large enterprises. And it's been interesting to me. I've gotten feedback from a lot of people in small and medium businesses who have bought the book and are using it and finding it useful. And that's, of course, really rewarding because I wasn't targeting them particularly, but it's great to know that they're finding these principles apply. And And I really think they do because after all, you know, let's say you're a bakery and you want to launch some new kinds of cakes or something or an app for people to order food in advance or whatever else. You know, you have the same basic issue. Like you say, you need to you need to create something that your customer will will, will want, something that aligns with their needs that resonates with their lifestyle. And so the process of, of saying, okay, well, how can I, you know, talk to my customers, engage with them, understand their needs in advance, and then create some prototypes and test them. It's by no means only in the realm of large companies. You know, if you're a baker and you create a new type of cookie, cr- make a batch, give them to some customers. I mean, this doesn't have to be uh, you know, major, major undertaking. And I think that, um, the basic principles, you know, in my book, I talk about five key steps of, you know, understanding the customer, mapping the journey, building it, looking for quick fixes and optimizations, and kind of leading the change. The funny thing is small businesses have the least issues around leadership because when you're working at a large enterprise, you have this challenge of organizational resistance. And how am I going to get everyone to do it? When you're in a small business, you're often in a lot better positioned to say, okay, guys, we're going to go in another direction, and you can have a meeting about it, and quite possibly getting everyone, everyone on board. Something that might take you a year to get done at a large enterprise. So, as a small business, you have much, you have many advantages when you're trying to undergo transformation. Now, sometimes it might feel like, but you don't have as much resource as a large company does, and that's true. But as I say, there are really small-scale ways of doing all of these activities, and if you, if you, you know, if you look in the book and you just see all of the different exercises and practices that are described. None of them require million-dollar pieces of equipment. None, none of them require you know million-dollar research budgets or giant supercomputers or anything like that. If you have tons and tons of data to analyze, then sure, you may need more sophisticated tools. But a lot of it is just more conceptual. It's a process to follow to become successful.
0: So you mentioned the five-step methodology. Can you give some golden gems to listeners of what they can do? At their business, at their today tomorrow.
1: Sure, sure. I think um, well. I think first of all, you know, we've been talking about, of course, the idea of doing customer research, and to some degree, I've already touched on the fact that there are a lot of different ways to do customer research, and it's important to do it in a way that will give you good insights. And I put it that way because I would never say there's only one right way to do customer research, but there are wrong ways, and there are wrong ways that can give you misleading results. So. You know, I think it's important, for example, one of the best strategies I find to do customer research is ethnography, to observe your customer in one way or another, to really try to understand what are they going through? What is their experience? What is their journey? And sometimes you can just do that in your own business, right? If you're running a grocery store just spend time observing shoppers. Like what happens when they enter the store? Do they have a list? Is it on their phone? Is it on paper? How do they go about navigating the store? How are they picking products? You know, all those types of things, right? What is their total experience? And... What is the emotional journey that they're going through? Are they happy the whole time? or Are there moments, are they frustrated the whole time? Are there certain things that delight them, like when there's a free cheese sample? Are there other things that frustrate them, like the side, the lines at the checkout or when they can't figure out the price of an item because it's not marked and they have to find the spot on the shelf and then they're not sure if the product they're holding aligns with this label on the shelf or that label on the shelf or whatever. You know, take the time to observe. And, you know, you know, you ask for gems. I say that would be one certainly is is observation. Even before that, though, is essentially curiosity and humility. I think that it starts with recognizing that you probably don't understand your customer as well as you might think you do, and that can be hard for some business owners or people who work in business if they've been in that business a long time is to just say, you know, I don't. I should not be assuming that even though I've worked in this business for all that I understand my customer. And by the way, anything you thought you knew about your customer prior to this year, you can throw it out anyway, because COVID has been such a dramatic societal change and has influenced people's behaviors and priorities and fears and goals so much that you have to refresh your insights about your customers. It doesn't mean that they're all wrong, not at all, but you don't know which ones are still right and which ones that used to be true are no longer true. So you have to take a fresh look and say, okay, who is my customer today? What do they need? What's important to them? What are the points of pain that they're experiencing? What are the points of friction or confusion or disappointment or frustration? And and it's always there. And and curiosity, you know, I said humility and curiosity. Curiosity says, I really want to know what my customer's experience is. Not I want to cherry pick the information that will allow me to believe I'm giving my customer a really great experience right now, you know, because of course we'd all like to believe our customers are having a fantastic experience and it can be a little painful or wistful to come face to face with the fact that, you know, sometimes we let them down. Sometimes we confuse them and frustrate them. Sometimes we make them really angry and try to cultivate a mindset of curiosity to say, no, no, no. I really want to know this stuff. (laughs) I really want to understand what's going on and Because that information will allow you to do so much more for your customers. So you have to be willing to face, you know, the warts and everything. And when you do, you're in a much better position to then take that information and create a better experience rather than just pretend that you know the customer, you know they're happy, you know what's going on. And by the way, one last thought about that. I'm often in the position of going into clients where we've done research and sharing with them all of the problems that we found, all of the points of customer pain and dissatisfaction. And of course, we always want to highlight where the customer is really happy as well. Let's not only focus on that, but the truth of the matter is most of the attention winds up being in the pain and dissatisfaction because that's where the opportunity is. You don't want to forget what you're doing right because you want to keep doing it. But most of the opportunity for improvement is probably not around what you're doing right. Although sometimes you can take something you're doing right and magnify it, but rather about addressing the areas where there are gaps. And so what I always try to remind clients, for example, when I'm presenting it is, look, the more slides I have for you about the problems in your customer experience, the happier you should be. The more problems that I have found, the happier you should be. And here's why. Because I know of no business that doesn't have a goal of growing. You want more money, you want more customers, you want more profit. You want your business to get better, not stay the same and not do worse, to get better. So if I were to do an analysis and come back to you and say, listen, I've looked at every facet of your customer experience and it is perfect there is literally nothing you can improve. You have hit the top. There is no room for improvement because your customers are happy every step of the way. Well, how are you gonna get them to give you any more money? How are you gonna grow your customers if there's no room for improvement? But the more problems that we can find, and I'm saying all this to sort of help cultivate that curiosity, right? Why you can kind of get yourself geared up for the idea that no, I wanna find the problems because every problem is an opportunity to turn it around and as a result, bring the cash register. Because you're obviously doing a certain level of business today, despite all of those problems. Your customers are giving you their money, even though you're sometimes disappointing them, frustrating them, et cetera. Imagine how much more they would give you if you got rid of all that stuff and added some stuff that would delight them in ways they didn't even expect. And so finding all that stuff, that's the treasure. That's where the money is. And when you cultivate that mindset, You see a lot more of it because you're not trying not to see it, which is what a lot of us naturally do. You know, we don't want to see negative stuff, but you're trying to see it. And I think that's perhaps more important than any specific research technique is approaching it with the right mindset.
0: I agree. Mindset is everything. With that mindset approach, I would say not but, but and... To what you said, I do believe the treasures are also in the positive feedback, particularly when customers mention an employee by name. And I found that I've been able to use those examples and bring them to the employees as celebration moments. and it makes them want to do more. And that's easy right, to do,
1: yeah. and i'll'll I'll give a couple more ands on top of your ad because there's no question. <laughs> That there's many ways that to use the things you find in research that you're doing right, and and one of them, and you mentioned one, absolutely reinforcing good behavior. Also, it can start to feel hopeless if you find too many problems. It, you can get people to feel like, oh my god, you know, we suck. You know, we're never going to fix this, right? So to be able to start by saying, you know, like, for example, when you do an agile retrospective on a development cycle or something, the first thing in a, in a good retrospective, the first question, well, the first question you usually ask is, what were our goals? We, we just finished launching a new app. What were our goals? Okay. That's neither good nor bad. That's just a reminder. But at least when I run a retrospective, the next section is, what did we do great? Where did we kill it? Even if the thing was a huge disaster, even if every customer hated it, there's something we did right. Well, we shipped it on time. You know, that's something, right? We were on budget or whatever. You, we did something right. And and you always, I think, want to build on success because that is also a valuable mindset. So to remind us that, yeah, you know, we've done a lot of things that are right, but these things that are wrong, this is where a lot of the treasure is. So let's dive in because, you know, we're committed to doing even more right. So absolutely, I think there's a lot of reasons why the good stuff, the correct stuff, the stuff that's delivering customer delight is valuable to look at. Couldn't Couldn't, couldn't possibly disagree with
0: that. So last two questions, told you the time would go fast.
1: Yeah, wow, okay.
0: If you could give advice, what's your one takeaway to imagine CEOs, leaders are all in my room right now. What's that one thing you want them to know?
1: Well, my number one topic is always that the money comes from the customer. (laughs) So if you have any feeling of this idea of customer experience is a little bit um, abstract or or airy-fairy or a nice-to-have or not hard-nosed business and therefore something that you only want to put token investment in but not really focus on, just remember that what is business really all about? I mean, not to be sort of cynical, but in the end, if you're talking to CEOs, it's about money right? That's not what gets me out of bed every, every morning, by the way. What I love to do is create great experiences for people. But I know that that's not why businesses pay me. They pay me because it makes them more money. And so when you're speaking to C- CEOs and others, like you said, their number one focus has got to be money. Because if not, then the shareholders will say, thanks for your t- tenure, but we're going to find another CEO who's going to focus on money. Like That's what you have to do. So then if you say, well, where does the money come from? Obviously, the money comes from the customers. And then the question is, okay, well, how do we get the money from the customers? And the answer is influencing their behavior. If the customers engage in the right behavior, we're going to get their money. We're going to have lower cost of sales. We're going to have better viral marketing. All the things that we want to generate more money, or at least the vast majority of them, are a result of driving customer behavior. So if you look at it that way, The secret to business success is mostly about driving desirable customer behavior. And if you look at it that way, well, and I'll add one more later to that. What is it that drives people's behaviors? Well, really behaviors are driven by thoughts and feelings. That's pretty much. Why did you do whatever you did today? Because you had a thought or you had a feeling. And not to go into it in too much detail, I talk about this in much more detail in my book. But then the question is, okay, fine. So the goal of the business is to generate money by driving customer behaviors. The behaviors are driven by the thoughts and feelings. What creates thoughts and feelings? What is it that causes you to have the thoughts and feelings you have every day? You didn't have them when you were born as a baby. Where did they come from? And the answer is from your experiences. So if we know that experiences create thoughts and feelings, which create behaviors, which give you money, then to focus on the experience as the root cause of business success makes all the sense in the world. And then when someone comes to you and says, I need $5 million to improve the customer experience, instead of saying, you know... That sounds like a lot of like nice to have kind of stuff. See it as an investment in the most important thing you can do to deliver revenue, profit, growth, EBITDA, market capitalization, all these types of things.
0: Finally, an inspirational question. And that is, if you could go back to your younger self, let's say 20-year-old Howard, based on what you know now that you didn't know then, what would you tell your younger self?
1: Well, you know, I guess I would say take a different path this time. You know, I, uh, I, if I had it all to do over again, would I do it the same way? Why not? Why would I do it the same way? You know, I've had a great ride. I've done really interesting, fun things. Had a lot of great opportunities. But if I was to go back to my twenty-year self, I'd say, okay, we went this way in life because there's so many choices and decisions you make in life, and they you know, where you choose to live and what you choose to do for a living and all that. As I told you, I started out in the theater. You know, I have no regrets about anything that I've done. But if I was to go back and do it again, I'd pick a different path.
0: Hmm. Well, and I would add to that to say, trust the process because it led you right. And when you go on the next path, it, you know, again, same thing. Trust, just trust because it all works out. I agree. Thank you so much for being here. And I know people are going to want to find you. I'll have in the show notes, the links, but where is the best place to reach out to you?
1: Sure, sure. Well, again, thanks for having me. If you want to learn more about my book, uh, you can just Google my name or the name of the book, which is Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance. But there's also a website for the book, which is at winningdigitalcustomers.com. You can go there. You can download the first chapter for free, and you can also uh, get links to all the places you can buy the book. Uh, If you want to learn more about my firm, uh, From, the Digital Transformation Agency, you can go to the URL from.digital. I also post very frequently on LinkedIn. I do two live casts a week. I have a podcast. So you can also find me on LinkedIn under my name, Howard Tierski. Feel free to follow me or friend me. And, uh, you know, as I say, I post a lot of content there as well. So for those that are interested, we always welcome more, more viewers and listeners.
0: Well, thank you for being so awesome and being here today and to be continued, as I always say.
1: Awesome. Thank you.